It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It's Friday, folks. Almost no traffic coming to the office today. I guess a couple of Fridays before Christmas season, Christmas shopping must account for that. But I liked it. Um, Hope you have a good weekend coming up. And uh, I've got to already make some changes today to Media Buzz to deal with a major story that we will get to in mere moments. And by the way, if you're not doing anything on Sunday morning, Media Buzz airs on Fox at 11 Eastern. So let me get through some uh, preliminary stuff here. Yesterday, the House, on a party line vote, House Republicans were able to censure Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman. This is the guy who pulled the fire alarm and passed 214 to 191. He has to stand there in the well of the House while they reprimand him. Uh, He was caught on video setting off a false fire alarm. This is when Dems were stalling for time to review the Republican stopgap spending bill. The building had to be evacuated. I forgot that part. Um, Bowen pleaded guilty to a single false fire alarm charge with D.C. authorities, paid a $1,000 fine. This is basically payback for the expulsion of George Santos. But I'm not defending what Bowman did. It was dumb. It was just plain dumb. Now, the Republican Congresswoman, Lisa McLean, who introduced the resolution, said while the House was working tirelessly... Diverted government shutdown. Representative Bowman was working nefariously to prevent a vote. Now, he says what he said all along. I am embarrassed to admit that I activated the fire alarm, mistakenly thinking it would open the door. I regret this and sincerely apologize for any confusion this caused. The problem is nobody believes this explanation. Everybody believes he was trying to delay the vote. Uh, yesterday, more than 750 staff members of the Washington Post walked off the job. It's a one-day strike, 24 hours. Biggest in a very long time. And let's just look at some of the details here, if I can get my papers in order. Uh, okay, so they stood outside the office here in downtown D.C., waving strike signs, ringing bells, blowing horns, beating drums, and chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, our salary floor is much too low. I'm just, I'm only laughing at the atmospherics of it. Uh, But the the union, the newspaper guild at the Washington Post has never had a whole lot of power. They're not going to do a real strike. So they did this one-day thing. Um, One of the guild officials saying this is a declaration by Hundreds of Washington Post staffers saying that if the company is to work with us fairly, it has to respect its employees. I know they will still try to get a paper out, but they can't get a good paper out without us. You know, to the average person looking at the website yesterday, looking at the paper, I mean, obviously, it wasn't as good as it could have been. But, you know, if you didn't know this was happening, you might not say, oh, what's going on? Um, And this comes at a time, you know, obviously, Jeff Bezos owns the paper, but and you know, bought it with his own money, but doesn't want to obviously spend more money than he has to. The paper's um, gonna lose. This is in the Washington Post story itself. $100 million this year. 
And so there's a bunch of offers of um, voluntary buyouts. The post union says, well, that's kind of a way of pressuring people to quit. And it mentions, boy, was this a long time ago. Back in 1975, when Catherine Graham was the publisher, the, the printers, the printers union walked off. And you can't publish paper without printers. So she brought in other people to run the presses and broke the union. Broke the printers union. And this was a huge uproar at the time because it wasn't seen as a liberal thing to do. But, you know, Catherine Graham was capable of playing hardball. Okay, uh, another lawsuit against Sean Combs, or as he's known, hip-hop mogul Sean Combs, alleging that he and others trafficked and sexually assaulted a 17-year-old girl back in 2003. This is the fourth sexual abuse lawsuit involving Combs in less than a month. She was in the 11th grade. This is according to her... um, Suit, Combs persuaded her to take a private jet with another person to his New York recording studio. They plied her with drugs and alcohol and gang raped her, according to this lawsuit. Um, my only question is, I can understand when you're 17 in 2003 not feeling like you could take this guy on, but how about in all the years since? But a lot of these suits are being filed now because of uh, a law that extended for one year the statute of limitations for anything that you allege happened to you. Okay, the debate the other night on News Nation drew just over 4 million viewers. Some are saying, oh, it was the lowest ever. I think I'm surprised it's that high. I mean, you had the News Nation network, which has a relatively small audience, and you have the CW network, and just from those two, got to over 4 million people. And, of course, the clips have been replayed over and over and over again because it was a pretty hot and times ugly debate. Well, just as everybody was saying, well, that's the last debate of the season, there are going to be more. Two hosted by CNN, one in Iowa, one in New Hampshire, and one hosted by ABC, which always hosts a debate uh, in New Hampshire. These are not sanctioned by the Republican Party, but the Republican, the RNC is saying, you know, people want to go participate. We're not going to mess with that. But here's the catch. The standards that CNN, at least, is setting is that you can only participate if you're at 5% in at least three national polls or 7% in at least three state polls or maybe some combination. That could well knock out not just Vivek Ramaswamy, but Chris Christie. And I think it's too stringent. I think what this is an effort to do is CNN is saying we want a two-person debate, DeSantis and Haley. And we're going to knock these other two out. But do they not have a right to be heard? I mean, obviously there has to be some standard. If you're at 0.1% in the polls, you shouldn't be able to get on that stage. But this strikes me as a pretty high threshold, shall we say. And speaking of the debate, this is a piece in National Review that is so uh, nasty, shall we say, that I enjoyed reading it. Uh, it's about Vivek Ramaswamy. 
His presidential campaign is increasingly predicated on the assumption that GOP voters have become so mistrustful of institutions and establishments, they will swallow any paranoid conspiracy theory they encounter. Ramaswamy endorsed as many popular conspiracy theories uh, the other night in Alabama as he could. Why am I the only one on this stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? Okay, the only reason that you're the only one on the stage saying that, Vivek, is that it's complete and utter bullcrap. It's a pure conspiracy theory that that the uh, riot at the Capitol was fomented by undercover agents. Got any proof there, buddy? Uh, Let's see. What else did he say and do that uh, was frowned upon by National Review? In the space of almost, uh, at most, three breaths, Ramaswamy anointed himself as the only candidate brave enough to mortgage his credibility with reckless disregard for the consequences. The great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform, says Vivek. The 2020 election was indeed stolen by big tech. The 2016 election, the one that Trump won for sure, was also one that was stolen from by the national security establishment. That's a pretty deranged litany, says the magazine. If the moderators had him cut him off, they hadn't cut him off. Ramaswamy might have added that the CIA killed Kennedy, that the moon landing was a hoax, and New Coke was only ever an elaborate plot to popularize the original formula. Well, that is really far-fetched. Um, I, you know, he keeps going down in the polls because people are watching his performance, and it, there's a lot of nunnery there. Whether he believes all this stuff is another question. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number one. More charges, criminal charges against Hunter Biden. Federal grand jury charging the president's son with a scheme to evade federal taxes on millions in income from foreign businesses. You know, he already faced that gun-related charge. Three counts of taxes, uh, evasion of a tax assessment, failure to file and pay taxes, and filing a false or fraudulent tax return. This is described by the New York Times as a withering play-by-play of personal indulgence with potentially enormous political costs, excuse me, for his father. Now, remember, in the earlier round, and it was the same guy, David Weiss, who's now special counsel at DOJ, the tax charges against Hunter, and I'm doing this from memory, were basically that he failed to file on time, then he borrowed a bunch of money from a friend and paid, I think it was about a million dollars, maybe more, And so it was a narrow charge, and therefore the plea bargain enabled him, enabled Hunter Biden, to do no jail time. But that collapsed. Then we have the appointment of the special counsel. And now, this seems like a much more sweeping indictment in the tax area filed in California. Hunter Biden engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in self-assessed federal taxes he owed for the years 2016 through 2019. Generally, we knew that. But between these dates, going up to October 15, 2020, the defendant spent this money on drugs 
escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels, rental properties, exotic cars, clothing, and other items of a personal nature. In short, everything but his taxes. That was written by Prosecutor David Weiss. If convicted, he faces a maximum of 17 years in prison. Now, some Republicans are saying, well, this isn't enough, and they want him to be prosecuted for uh, things that could be used against President Biden in terms of his business dealings with foreign countries. Prosecutors said he subverted the payroll and tax withholding process of his own company by withdrawing millions from the coffers that he used to subsidize, and here's another quote, an extravagant lifestyle rather than paying his tax bills and taking false business deductions. It's a 56-page bleeping indictment. Um, He was called out in this indictment for failing to pay child support and his reliance on associates, including a Hollywood lawyer, to pay his way. $1.6 million in ATM withdrawals? 683000 in payments to various women. 400000 for clothing and accessories. About $750,000 for restaurants, health and beauty products, groceries, and other retail purchases. There was a sort of a split-screen image here of Hunter Biden scooping up. Remember, these are charges that he will contest. Millions in income and gifts from friends while stubbornly refusing to pay his taxes. Defendants spent $17,500 each month, totaling approximately two hundred dollars from January through October 15, 2020, on a lavish house on a canal in Venice Beach, California. The IRS stood as the last creditor to be paid. Now, Hunter's lawyer, Abby Lowell, said that Weiss had bowed to Republican pressure accused them of reneging on their previous agreement, had not responded to a request for a meeting. If Hunter's last name was anything other than Biden, the charges in Delaware and now California would not have been brought, says Abby Lowell. There's no reference in this indictment to Joe Biden, but prosecutors did point out that Hunter Biden's compensation from Burisma, the now famous Ukrainian energy company, dropped from... This, the Republicans will have some fun with this. Uh, $1 million a year in 2016, while his father was still vice president, to 500000 in 2017, two months after Joe Biden left office. Coincidence? You decide. Well, uh, those are some heavy-duty charges. I think, in my view, go beyond just in sheer detail what we already knew. And there was some question about whether these charges, when David Weiss was just the U.S. attorney in Delaware, uh, could be filed in California, but now they have been. And this is going to be an ongoing battle just when the President of the United States needs that least. And speaking of the aforementioned POTUS, story two, you know, it was kind of a huge deal when... Joe Biden at a fundraiser, so it's not on camera, said, I'm not sure I'd be running if Donald Trump was not in the race. Um, And so there's been a lot of talk about this. 
Biden walked it back after he came back to the White House. He approached reporters, that doesn't happen all that often, and said he wouldn't drop out of the race even if Trump did so. It's not a contradiction of his earlier remarks. He's just saying at this point in the race, I'm in. I'm staying in. And he got a shouted question after he delivered that speech that utterly failed. Um, This was just the other day about urging Congress, in this case the Senate, to pass the multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine, as well as other things. Uh, And then it was blocked because of this argument over the border. Somebody yelled, can any other Democrat defeat Trump? Now, Biden could have kept on walking. He was almost at the door. But he turned and he said, probably 50 Democrats could beat Trump. Trying to sort of laugh things off. I'm not the only one who could defeat him, but I will defeat him. Now, this is all off-the-cuff stuff, but obviously the president was trying to partially walk back. You know, something that could lead to speculation that maybe he's not 100% in. Remember, Trump at that town hall said he didn't think Biden would make it as the nominee physically, he said. I kind of doubt that. But as this time story puts it, if he's not indispensable, it opens the door to an uncomfortable question from skeptics in the party. Why not let some other Democrat have a chance to run for president? And this is the reason, and I've said this before. So Biden first ran for president in 1987. I covered some of that campaign, which was cut short um, over plagiarism allegations that turned out to be true. Then, 2008, Barack Obama picks him as VP. He wanted to run in 2016. Obama wanted Hillary, and also he was grieving over the death of his son, Beau. And then he runs in 2020 and gets elected. I like this sentence. People who think about running for president for 36 years tend not to give up the White House without a fight. No president since Rutherford B. Hayes has served the full four years of his first term and then declined to run again. What was Rutherford's problem? Why did he do that? I got to look into this. Uh, Ron Klain, Biden's uh, former chief of staff, saying in an interview that it's possible there are other Democrats in America who could beat Trump, but because Joe Biden's the only one to have actually done it, Klain says he has the best chance To do so again, this is a life or death moment for democracy. We need somebody who has beaten Trump before, says Ron Klain. Oh, um, J.D. Vance, the Republican senator from Ohio, is demanding a Justice Department investigation of a Washington Post journalist, commentator actually, who called for resistance if Trump retakes the White House next year. So Vance sends this letter to Merrick Garland. This has to do with Robert Kagan. I mentioned him because the Washington Post ran this like three or four page anti-Trump screed by him. He once worked in the Reagan administration, uh, so he's not a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. But he said resistance could come from the governors of predominantly Democratic states, such as California and New York, through a form of nullification. Are, are you kidding me? This is exactly the kind of procedural garbage that the Democrats and the media have accused Donald Trump of trying to pull. 
nullify? I mean, that's what led to January 6th. This is always an option in our federal system, writes Kagan. And so J.D. Vance says um, that this is an invitation to insurrection, a manifestation of a criminal conspiracy, or an attempt to bring about a civil war. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three, I didn't have a chance to talk about this the other day, but this hearing that was held to call to account the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania is just a fiasco, a complete and other embarrassment. I mean, the question is pretty easy. Would they discipline students calling for the genocide of Jews? And they gave these, it's a four-hour hearing, they gave these lawyerly uh, word salad responses to avoid saying that. White House spokesman says it's unbelievable that this needs to be said. Calls for genocide are monstrous and antithetical to everything we represent as a country. And I agree. Josh Shapiro, Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, said he found the responses by the president of UPenn, Elizabeth McGill, unacceptable. Even liberal academic Lawrence Tribe said he found himself agreeing with Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who very sharply questioned the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay. Here's Tribe. I'm no fan of Rep. Stefanik, but I'm with her here. Claudine Gay's hesitant, formulaic, and bizarrely evasive answers were deeply troubling to me and many of my colleagues, students, and friends. But I think the person who is in the most trouble today is McGill, Elizabeth McGill of Penn. Um, here's more from Shapiro. It should not be hard to condemn genocide, condemn genocide against Jews, genocide against anyone else. I've said many times leaders have a responsibility to speak and act with moral clarity. And Liz McGill failed to meet this simple test. There should be no nuance. She needed to give a one-word answer. Instead, it was all about, well, free speech and different points of view and so forth. You know, the, the presidents of these uh, prestigious schools, they don't worry about, oh, we can't take a position here because of free speech when it involved... Black Lives Matter and, understandably, the murder of George Floyd and others during that awful summer of 2020, or when it comes to people who are protesting for the Palestinian cause or pro-Hamas. Here's part of the exchange on the Hill. Elise Stefanik. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? Elizabeth McGill. If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. So Congresswoman Stefanik comes back. I'm asking specifically, calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? McGill said, if it is directed and severe, pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. And then the president of the University of Pennsylvania says, it is a context dependent decision, Congresswoman. And Elise Stefanik 
just could hardly believe it. That's your testimony today? Calling for the genocide of Jews is dependent on the context? And you know who doesn't like this either? Another Democrat from Pennsylvania. Senator John Fetterman described the testimony as a significant fail. There is no both sidesism, and it isn't free speech. It's simply hate speech, he said in a statement. Embarrassing for a venerable Pennsylvania university should be reflexive for leaders to condemn anti-Semitism. Well, with this just, you know, hailstorm of criticism, uh, Elizabeth McGill has apologized. Uh, I was focused on our university's longstanding policies, aligned with the Constitution, speech is not punishable. I was not focused on, but I should have been, the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. It's evil, plain and simple. Well, where were your words when you're sitting on the witness stand in the House of Representatives? Did this not occur to you? She completely walks it back. And here's the fallout in language that colleges can understand. A University of Pennsylvania donor, after that hearing, is withdrawing a gift to the school worth $100 million to protest the response to anti-Semitism on campus. This is Ross Stevens, founder and CEO of Stone Ridge Asset Management. And, you know, when you're a college president, when you're a university president, I mean, part of your job is to raise money. She just cost the school $100 million, and I don't blame this donor, because it was such an embarrassing performance. I mean, university presidents are supposed to be smart, right? You don't get to be one if you're a dummy. And they're supposed to be politically adept enough to have won the support to, to take that office. And for the, not just Elizabeth McGill, but, you know, for the president of Harvard and others to sit there on Capitol Hill and go, blah, 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 depends on the context. Well, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. You know, we try to be fair to all sides and free speech and blah, blah, blah. This is not a question of free speech. People can say whatever they want. But there are sometimes consequences to free speech. If your students, the ones that you're responsible for, the ones that are paying tuition, go out and endorse terrorism by Hamas and accuse Israel of genocide, and I, you know, Israel's not immune from criticism here, and we'll get to that in a second, um, that should have consequences. I won't say what the consequences should be, but you can't have the university presidents telling members of Congress and it depends on the context. It doesn't matter what the context is. All right, let's move on to number four. Israeli soldiers rounding up dozens of Palestinian men, stripping them down to their underwear, according to a video viewed by the Washington Post. And uh, I happened to see this morning that CNN has at least the still pictures of this. Just a large number of Palestinian men in northern Gaza sitting there stripped to their underwear. What is the point of that other than humiliation? What is the point of that? So here is a guy named Hani Almadon, Almadon, Palestinian who lives in Washington. He identified his 32-year-old brother 
in the video clip. He said their father and his nephews were also among those who were detained, including a 13-year-old boy named Omar. He said these are civilians and they're not associated with Hamas or any other fighters. Now, Israeli media have also been reporting uh, on the video. And this guy, Alma Don, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing it, uh, interviewed by the Washington Post says, this is just to humiliate. In what planet is this okay? Why is this okay? Why are they rounding people from their homes? Now, spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces says that Israeli troops in Gaza have arrested and interrogated hundreds of suspects of terrorist activity, uh, saying that many uh, had turned themselves in. He says the IDF detains and interrogates anyone in areas of military activity. One of those detained is a journalist, Gaza bureau chief of Al-Arabi Al-Jadid newspaper. I just think this adds, I understand, you know, you can't just take somebody's word for it about whether they're a member of Hamas or not. But the stripping part is just not acceptable. Okay, so as Israel is pushing Palestinian civilians into ever smaller pockets of land, and they have scant supplies, the military said, and this shows you the other side of the conflict, that Hamas, I'm not going to use the word militants that the Times does because it's just false, fired rockets from what it called humanitarian zones in southern Gaza. So you've got to feel some sympathy for the civilians, but at the same time, Hamas is putting its own Palestinian people in danger by firing rockets. By the way, if someone fired a rocket and it landed in Israel and killed a member of your family or it landed and blew up your house, would you say that was militants, that those were militants? I don't think so. Um, so, you know, Israel has made a great show of uh, saying these are humanitarian zones and people are safe there. But if those are getting smaller, um, you know, you've got about a million Palestinians who came from the north when Israel ordered uh, that evacuation. And there are different maps now showing different zones for where it must be safe. I don't think it's safe anywhere at this point. And that's... Quite unfortunate. Meanwhile, Reuters, editor-in-chief, posted a statement on X condemning the killing of one of the journalists of the Global Wire Service during an October airstrike on Lebanon. The evidence we now have and that we published today is that an Israeli tank crew killed our colleague, Issam Abdullah. Abdullah, excuse me. We condemn Islam's uh, killing, and we call on Israel to explain how this could have happened and to hold to account those responsible for his death and for the wounding of two other colleagues. No wonder people are worried about a wider war. Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, and, you know, any hope of restarting that military pause or ceasefire, I would say, is extremely remote at this point because Hamas wouldn't release all of the female hostages. And I wonder if Hamas regrets that now, but they held on to him. Okay, story number five is about a subject very close to my heart. And that is 
podcasts. This is a piece from TechCrunch. Uh, seems like the writing is on the soundproofed wall. The podcast boom is over. And this week's news is evidence. Spotify laying off 17% of the company. Uh, that's a lot. It's third round of layoffs this year. Canceled two highly acclaimed shows, including a, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting. But as a whole, the podcast industry didn't fail, TechCrunch says. It's just that Spotify took a billion-dollar swing and whiffed. And now podcasters themselves have to navigate the fallout. Here's a quote from an uh, independent podcast collective guy. Spotify has kind of set the terms of the quote-unquote health of the podcasting industry based on their actions as a tech company. But Spotify's choices don't have anything to do with me. It's just that they keep failing so publicly, and now everyone thinks podcasting is dead, which really frustrates me. Now, there are a lot of people who make podcasts for a living. They aren't getting the multi-million dollar deals from Spotify or from Apple or from Amazon, but the industry isn't as imperiled as it seems. And yes, Spotify's shadow looms so large that it's not impossible for its failures not to reverberate. So Spotify just got carried away. It bought all these other podcasting companies, Gimlet, The Ringer, Anchor, Parcast, Megaphone, and then did these uh, eight- and nine-figure deals with Joe Rogan, uh, Alex Cooper, Prince Harry, company dumping over a billion bucks, uh, trying to kind of be the first name in podcasting, but now has canceled over a dozen shows. In hindsight, I was too ambitious in investing ahead of our revenue growth, says the uh, top executive at Spotify. This was after 600 people were laid off back in January and not counting this new layoff of 17%. So it turns out that when Spotify got these shows to be exclusive, and that was the whole point, you had to go to Spotify if you wanted to hear Joe Rogan or others. Some shows lost more than three-quarters of their audiences after being converted to Spotify exclusives. Spotify told show teams that their podcasts were being canceled because of low numbers, said a statement by these two unions of the podcasting companies bought by Spotify. But decisions Spotify leadership made directly contributed to those low numbers. Spotify is not all of podcasting. Podcasting is not dead. Well, I am breathing one hell of a sigh of release here because I don't want it to be dead because I like doing this. And by the way, not only am I not getting millions of dollars, I'm not getting any dollars. I do it because I enjoy it. And apparently the millions of downloads suggest that a lot of people out there enjoy it. Now, maybe I should demand millions of dollars or maybe just a hundred bucks or something. Uh, but I'm glad to make that distinction between what Spotify has done, classic bad business decisions, and the many other people who are not necessarily world famous, but who do podcasts and enjoy it. Well, with that, again, hope the weekend is great. Media Buzz Sunday morning at 11. And I am so enjoying this that I will come back here Monday. I promise. With more Buzz Meter. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.